0: God's word together. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we'll be reading chapter 17 verses 1 through 5. John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5. This is what we read. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, I came across an article this week titled Five Prayers That Changed the World." Five Prayers That Changed the world. Now, I wonder which prayers you might put on that list. I'm sure there are prayers that you've prayed in your life that have changed your life and changed your worlds. But what about prayers that have changed the world a little bit more broadly? The author of this article included the following prayers on their list. Number one, St. Patrick's Christ Before Me prayer. Number two, William Tyndale's prayer for the King of England. And I'd love to tell you all of these prayers and the story behind them, but we just don't have time. Number three, Martin Luther King Jr.'s prayer for the church. Number four, Mother Teresa's Do It Anyway prayer. And then number five, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I'm not sure what criteria the author used in coming up with this list. I mean, how do you measure the impact of a prayer? It seems like a difficult thing to do. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised, though all prayers are precious and, and powerful, there are some prayers that are extraordinarily significant. There are some prayers, because of who prays them and what they pray for and when they pray them, they are particularly powerful and impactful. And for the next few weeks, we are going to be exploring one such prayer. See, we're beginning a a new sermon series today called Praying with Jesus, Exploring Jesus' Prayer in John 17. If you received a growth group guide on the way in, this is what the, the blurb says for this series in the growth group guide. It says, the Bible tells us that Jesus prayed and prayed often, but very rarely are we given insight into the content of those prayers. In John 17, a rare treasure is revealed. Jesus' final and longest public prayer, recorded immediately before his arrest, trial and crucifixion. In this exceedingly powerful and precious prayer, we discover not only the heart of Jesus, but also the heart of prayer. This is an incredibly significant prayer. And it breaks down into very naturally into three distinct sections. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for his church throughout all ages, including us. And so we'll be looking at this prayer in those three sections in coming weeks. But maybe you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, well, this doesn't sound very relevant for me or my life. But what we're going to be seeing in the next few weeks is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus Christ. And nothing is more relevant for any one of us than to know Jesus. And my hope and prayer for for you, if, if you come for the next few weeks, is that you might see not only are the claims of Jesus Christ confronting, they demand a response. But I hope you'll also see the person of Jesus Christ is undeniably compelling and that you might be drawn to him. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, which I'm guessing is many of us, perhaps you're already feeling a little bit guilty. I think any time we mention prayer, many Christians start to feel a little little bit guilty because either we're not praying at all or, or we're not praying enough. I think many of us don't pray for the simple reason is that we feel like we don't know how to pray. Now, the goal of this series is not to kind of... Um, guilt us into begrudging prayer, the goal of this series is that we might see the beauty and the power and the necessity of prayer and so that we might be compelled to pray for our good and for the glory of God. You see, the truth is we can all grow, we can all learn in this area. We can all benefit from exploring the heart of prayer. And really, one of the best places in the Bible to explore the heart of prayer is in John chapter 17. This is what I think, this I think is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. It certainly is one of the most treasured chapters in the Bible. In fact, Philip Melanchthon, who was a reformer during the 16th century, he was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He said this about this prayer. He said, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God himself. One commentator by the name of William Temple says it is perhaps the most sacred passage in the four gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the Welsh preacher, preached 48 sermons on this one chapter. You now I thought about doing that. But then I realised I wasn't Martin (laughs) Lloyd-Jones. So we're doing three. He says of this chapter, he says, it is one of the richest and most sublime statements to be found anywhere, even in the scriptures themselves. Now this prayer is so revered and so treasured for a number of different reasons. Number one, because it is a prayer between the Son and the Father. We had the privilege of hearing the Son of God conversing with his Father in heaven. This is, in other words, a conversation within the Godhead. The eternal Son is speaking to his eternal Father and we get to eavesdrop. To put it crudely, it's a little bit like the bonus features on a DVD that give you and take you behind the scenes. This is an incredible prayer. Not only that, this is the longest prayer that we have recorded from Jesus. Jesus prays at a number of different points, points, but this is by far his longest public recorded prayer. And not only that, this prayer is so significant, so revered, so treasured because of the point at which it occurs in Jesus' life. Jesus prays this prayer on the eve of his death. We were told this actually in verse 1. We read, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Now in the Gospel of John, the word hour always refers to Jesus' death, his crucifixion. And in the first half of the Gospel of John, up until this point, it has always been, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And now suddenly, we're told the hour has come. Jesus' death was imminent. In other words, that moment planned by the triune God from before the world was even created, it was about to happen. Jesus was about to be crucified, and so Jesus prays. And this actually reveals something significant for us. The fact that Jesus prays at this point is incredibly revealing. Because as Tim Keller points out, it actually reveals the heart of prayer, the why of prayer. It actually reveals to us why Jesus prays compared to why we often pray. I mean, why do we often pray? We tend to pray when something is in doubt. We tend to pray when things are uncertain when we're not sure we're going to get something or something's going to happen and we want that something, we want that thing to happen. In other words, we pray to try and conform God to our agenda. For example, if I was to say to you, this thing that you want, it's definitely going to happen tomorrow or this event is definitely going to happen tomorrow. God has willed it and it will happen tomorrow. So pray about it. You might think to yourself, well, Why would I pray about it? Why should I pray about it? If it's definitely going to happen, why pray? But here, as Jesus faces an event that he knew was going to take place, the Bible tells us that the cross was the plan of God before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created. Jesus knew it was going to happen and still he prays. And this reveals to us the difference between why Jesus prays and why we often pray. See, Jesus does not pray to try and conform God to his agenda. Jesus prays to conform his heart to God's agenda. Tim Keller says it this way, We pray to get God to give us things. Jesus prays to find God in things. For Jesus... The heart of prayer, the why of prayer, the purpose of prayer is not so much to get things, to get things from God, but to be with God. It's communion with God. It's to experience God, to know God, to be changed by God. This is the heart of prayer, the why of prayer, the purpose of prayer. And we see this not only in the fact that Jesus prays, we also see it in what Jesus prays for. We see it in his first prayer request. Look at what Jesus prays for in verse 1. Now remember, before we look at this phrase, remember that Jesus here is facing his impending death. And when you face death, it clarifies your priorities. It forces you to consider what really matters to you. It actually uncovers your deepest concerns. And here, Jesus' prayer request reveals his deepest concern. What is it? After this, Jesus prayed He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Jesus asked to be glorified not for himself, but so that he might glorify the Father. Jesus' deepest concern in the face of death is the glory of God. And what Jesus is really asking for here, what he is essentially saying is this. He's saying, Father, through my death on the cross that is about to take place, reveal to the world who I really am. Glorify me. Reveal me to be the Son of God and the Saviour of the world so that I may reveal what you are like. Your love, your holiness, your goodness. This is what it means to glorify something. You see, the word glory means to honor or, or to praise, which means to glorify something, means to reveal it as, glorious, as, as honorable and praiseworthy. It, it means to reveal its true character. It means to recognize its true worth. For example, earlier this year, I watched a a movie called Glory. Now, it's based on the true story of a volunteer military unit during the American Civil War. And it was a unit made up mostly of African Americans. Now, the story begins with their humiliation and their disrespect. They're not given proper equipment, they're not paid their full wage, etc., etc. But when the movie ends it ends with their glorification. It ends with their heroic charge on Fort Wagner, which Abraham Lincoln credited with turning the tide of the war. See, they were pressed down by racism and prejudice. But when they broke through the wall of Fort Wagner, they were glorified. Their courage, their bravery, their valour was revealed for all to see. And see, on the cross, the glory of Jesus Christ was revealed On the cross, he was revealed and seen to be as the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. And the love of God, the holiness of God was put on display. And it's through the cross that God is is glorified. Because it's through the cross that he saves and rescues undeserving sinners like you and me. It's through the cross that he gives us the gift of eternal life with him. And in fact, this is what Jesus goes on to pray for in verses 2 to 3. Jesus continues, he says, For you, talking to the Father, you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, Jesus' death on the cross glorifies God. Because the gift of eternal life, through it, the gift of eternal life is given to undeserving sinners. And that's exactly what eternal life is. It's a gift. Did you see that there in verse 2? Jesus said that he might give eternal life. Eternal life is not something we earn. It's not a merit badge. It's not a promotion. It's not an award. It is a gift. And in fact, to... Emphasize the giftedness of eternal life. Look closely at what Jesus says there. He says, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. In other words, Jesus says, you not only receive the gift of eternal life from Jesus, but you are actually a gift from the Father to the Son. And what this means is that you If you love Jesus and know Jesus, you did not end up with Jesus as a mistake, as an accident, or as a coincidence. You were given to Jesus as a gift from the Father. It's right there. And R.C. Sproul says this, he says, The only reason I can give under heaven why I'm a Christian is because I'm a gift of the Father to the Son, not because of anything I've ever done or could do. And this should fill you with incredible assurance and security. Because what it means is if you belong to Christ, it's not because you're awesome. It's not because you worked your way there. It's not because you're keeping yourself there. It's because the Father has given you to Christ and Christ has given you the gift of eternal life. And this gift that we're given from Christ, this gift of eternal life, it's far greater than we even realise. In fact, I think when we often hear this word, eternal life, it, it fills our minds with imagery of harps and clouds and lots of sitting around. You know, I don't think we hear it as something desirable. But that's because we don't properly understand it. Jesus gives us the true definition of eternal life there in verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is the gift of knowing God. It's not essentially living forever, though, though that's implied and included. It is the gift of knowing God. One commentator puts it this way in his commentary. says, eternal life is in essence quality of life rather than quantity of life. True, it participates in the victory over the grave which the sun has won through his death and rising and is therefore endless. But that is certainly not its most important feature. It is life knowing God. Eternal life is life with God. And this is why the goal of going to heaven is not to to escape going to hell. The goal of going to heaven is to know God, to be with God. And this is why eternal life is the gift of knowing God and this is why eternal life has begun right now. This is why we experience eternal life right now. Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, he said, whoever believes in the Son has... Eternal life, present tense, has. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life right now. This is why Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, I know that many of us, when we hear this, we might think to ourselves, well, you know, that sounds nice, Uh, life to the full, life with God. But to be honest, Adam, I'm just trying to make it through the week. I mean, I have a job to go to, a house to clean, mouths to feed, bills to pay, relationships to work on. I don't have much time or energy left for living life to the full. You see, that's just the point. What Jesus is talking about here, eternal life, life with God, life to the full, he's not just talking about ecstatic, emotional, mountaintop experiences. He's talking about experiencing and knowing God in the everyday, ordinary moments. Now, we often look at all those things in our life as barriers to, to knowing God and to experiencing God, you know, all the busyness of our life. And, and look, sometimes it might be, if it stops us from ever spending time in prayer and ever spending time in the Bible But God is saying to us, if you would just open up your life, open up your eyes, open up your heart, you would see that I am with you in the midst of all things. That I am at work in the midst of all things. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in his brilliant book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. He says, we don't have to wait until we get to the end of the road before we enjoy what is at the end of the road. Because life Eternal life is life with God and it has begun. It's perhaps best summarised by that old hymn that says, Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew, that I may love what you do love and do what you would do. This is why Jesus came, to go to the cross, to pay for our sin, to bring us to God, to give us life with God both now and forevermore. And this mission that God gave to the Son, this mission that the Father gave to Jesus, it is now complete. It's finished. This is what Jesus goes on to say in verses 4 to 5. He says, I have brought you glory on earth, talking to the Father, by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. These are some of the most deep and profound verses in the Bible. And what Jesus is saying there is, I have been faithful to fulfill the task that you have given to me, Father. And now that Jesus anticipates the finish line, he longs to return to the presence of his Father in heaven, with whom he existed before the world was even created, with whom he eternally existed. And this is exactly what happens a a little bit later in Acts chapter 1. When the glorified, resurrected Jesus ascends back into heaven to the presence of the Father. Which means right now, Jesus reigns and rules at the right hand of God. See, this passage is incredibly deep and unbelievably profound. And it gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. Jesus' deepest concern is the glory of God. Jesus came from heaven to earth to give us eternal life life with God. And Jesus has now returned to the Father and he reigns and rules in heaven. But this passage not only gives us an insight into the heart of Jesus, it also gives us an insight into the heart of prayer. And I'd like to close with three simple lessons for us about our prayer life. Three insights we can learn from this passage about prayer. Number one, our prayers should begin with the glory of God. When we pray, we can and we should begin, like Jesus did, with the glory of God. Remember how Jesus began his prayer, glorify me that I might glorify you. When we pray, we can begin and should begin by asking God to use our lives to glorify him, to reveal more of himself to us and to show more of himself through us. We should pray, Father, would you be glorified in my life? Would my words and thoughts and deeds not only honour you, but would they reveal your presence to those in my world, my friends, my colleagues, my family? Now, when we begin our prayers in this way, we shift from trying to force God to adopt our agenda. God, this is what I want. This is what I think. This is what I need. And we open ourselves up to God's agenda in our lives. God, help me, change me, use me, teach me. Now, I know that prayer can be difficult. It feels impractical. It can feel like work. But prayer opens our hearts up to God. Prayer is how God's power comes down into our lives. Prayer is powerful. Not just because we're asking the glorious God to act on our behalf, but because through the act of prayer, the glorious God is changing us. And this won't happen overnight. And it won't happen if we just pray before meals. But if we devote ourselves to prayer, it will happen slowly, subtly and undeniably. God will do his glorious work in our lives. So let me ask you, when you pray, do you begin with the glory of God? Do you begin by asking God to change you or are you always asking God to change others, to change circumstances? That's not wrong. But begin with the glory of God so that God might use you for his glory in your world. Secondly, our prayers should be concerned with eternal life. Now, often our prayers are are filled with or, or only concerned with everyday matters. Now, that's not wrong. That's good. God wants you to bring every need and request to him. But our prayers should be concerned with more than just our everyday requests. Our prayers should be concerned with matters of eternal significance. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Think about the order of the Lord's Prayer. Now, before Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread... He first teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so we can and we should pray for our wife or our husband. We should pray for their health, their job and and so forth. But we should also pray that they might know God more deeply. We should pray for our kids, their school, their health and so forth. But we should also pray for their relationship with God. We should pray for those people in our lives who don't know God And ask God to give them the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our prayers should be concerned with matters of eternal significance. And thirdly, our prayers should be fuelled by confident faith in the exalted Jesus. We were told in verses 4-5 to the amazing truth that Jesus' work of salvation is finished. Jesus has paid for our sin. He's given us the gift of eternal life. He's returned to the Father and he now reigns and rules victorious in heaven. And this should fill you with confident faith when you pray. Jesus is in heaven with all authority, all power, and he is for you. You don't have to twist God's arm to to love you, to accept you, to be for you. He already is on your side and has all authority. In fact, in verse 5, when Jesus asks to be restored to the glorious presence that he enjoyed with his father before the world began, this implies that when Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, he lost something of his glory. Now, why did he have to do that? Why did he have to come from heaven to earth? Because down on earth, we had decided to live for our own glory. We had walked away from God. And in Jesus Christ, God has walked towards us to lead us home. And Jesus Christ forfeited some of his glory in the presence of the Father so that we could be brought back into the glorious presence of our Heavenly Father. And so what more could God do to convince you and compel you that he is for you, that he loves you, that he stands ready to hear your prayers, and that though he might not always answer your prayers in the way you think he should, because he knows more and he sees more than we do, he holds you safe in his hands and he invites you to enter into his presence, to be changed by him for our good and for his glory. So let's do that as we pray. Heavenly Father, what more could you do to reveal to us the depth of your love, the depth of your care, than all that you have done for us in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, this prayer that you prayed while you were on earth, on the eve of your death on the cross, It gives us such a powerful glimpse into your heart. So, Lord, help us see that vision and help it compel us, draw us into deeper prayer so that you might change us and transform us more deeply for our good and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have the privilege of responding to the word of god by coming to lord's supper and lord's supper reminds us of the price that jesus paid to bring us to god